you have a Bible, please turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 8. And if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab the handout that you either already have on your lap and turn it to the back and follow along. As you'll see Psalm 8 there printed on the back of the handout. If you don't have one of those handouts, they are at the back podium down the middle aisle. In John Golden Gay's commentary on Psalm 8, he has a very, I think, helpful setup and introduction that I just want to share with you. The crying of babies and infants. It is hard to listen to, and it is hard to avoid. Right now in South Sudan, one in seven children die before their fifth birthday. In Darfur, countless young girls are being abducted and raped and sold into sex slavery. The media report the rebellion of southern Sudan against the north led to the enslaving of children in the south. The strife between these two groups involved the impaling of children on fence posts. If boys did get the chance to grow beyond infancy, many of them would be soldiers in their childhood. We could look elsewhere in Africa where girls are captured and drafted into rebel armies, where they are too there raped, or we could look here in the United States. And it has been said that the case of child abuse is being reported every 10 seconds, and that four or five children will die each day because of that abuse. And that's not even to talk about the babies that are conceived but don't even make it to birth. Here in the U.S., it is said that over 3,000 abortions are performed every day. So when we read about the Old Testament and its discussion of babies and infants, we must remember that it is usually the victims of oppression, war, and death. When babies and infants, the words we're about to read in Psalm 8, verse 2, are referenced in the Old Testament... It is normally in the context of babies and infants crying in pain or in need. With that in mind, let's now read Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Last week we began on. Packing Psalm 8, thinking about it, meditating on it, applying it to our lives, and understanding how it is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Psalm 8, I argued, is in the my top 10 of most important passages for you to understand the whole Bible. 
And you can go back and listen to last week's message if you missed it, but the big idea from last week is the same big idea for this week because the point of this sermon will be the point of Psalm 8, which is the king's power, the creator king, his power, it is perfected through weak humans. The king's power, the God who created everything, he is majestic. And that majesty and power is on display through the weakness of humans, even infants and babies. And so really, what we want to do is take last week's introduction to Psalm 8, a song that was about kings, the creator king who made humans the crown of creation. And the way that that creation rebelled against him, but in his kindness and love, he used a human and the weakness of that human, Jesus Christ, to restore the kingdom of priests, humans, ruling over the earth with God through his word. That was last week, and now this week we want to focus on that last phrase, through weak humans. It's worthy of, I think, further meditation, which is why I wanted to save it for an entire message today. So in three points, we will look at God hears David's cries. Point two, God hears a baby's cry. Point three, God hears Jesus's cry. That will be the flow of today's message, and we're going to begin with David's cries. First, God hears David's cries, and this point is made clear in our psalm by the superscription, a psalm of David. And then by further evidence of looking at the way that the psalms are arranged. Some of you are really familiar with making cassette tapes. Most of you are more familiar with playlists on your Spotify account. Either way, I want you to imagine the Psalms as a collection of playlists, a collection of albums. They're arranged where each song is put in a category, in a theme. And what we've noticed over the past several weeks, this is the ninth message in our series, is that the first two Psalms are the psalms that introduce the theme of the whole Psalter. And so I want you to just turn your Bibles back to Psalm 2, just for a brief moment to notice the introduction of the whole Psalter in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples mutter, meditate, plot in vain? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That the kings of the earth will set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed one. The psalmist is saying that the whole theme of the psalms will in part be about the kings of the earth and the nations conspiring, plotting, murmuring, and trying to do damage against the anointed king of Israel. That's what you've heard right from the get-go in Psalm 2, which is, as I've argued, an important theme of the whole book. Yet, Psalm 2 ends with the kings being commanded in verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and kiss his son. The son that he has placed, as you see in verse 7, on his holy hill, his king. So, That's the theme. Yes, there will be raging of the nations. There will be plots to try and kill the king of Israel. There will be persecution against the people of God and specifically against his anointed king. But in the midst of that, 
The believer and the king himself need to remember that God has set a promise for the king and he will rule over the nations. So that's big idea of the Psalms. And we see that reflected right away in Psalm 3 through 7. That's your first playlist. It's your first collection or section of songs. And when you notice, just briefly, let's look through these Psalms. Notice the theme of crying. Psalm 3, verse 1, a Psalm of David when he is fleeing from his son Absalom. Oh, not just the kings and the rulers, but David's own son is going to persecute and come after the anointed one. Verse 1 says of Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. And then he says in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Psalm 4, verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Psalm 5, verse 1, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. Psalm 6, verse 6, I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. You remember that psalm? I cry so much that there's a swimming pool and I am swimming in my tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Psalm 6, verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord does accept my prayer, and so my enemies will be ashamed and troubled. They will turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Psalm 7, verse 1, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from my pursuers. Deliver me. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, he says in verse 6. Lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. That's a quick recap of an important theme in the last five psalms before Psalm 8. So you could argue, as I'm arguing now, that Psalms 3 through 7 are a unit about crying, specifically Psalms of David, where he's crying because the kings and the rulers and the nations are coming after him, and in fact, his son is coming after him. And so just like Psalm 2 set us up and said, this this big, long book of collection of, of songs and, and playlists and, and albums is a bunch of songs, and many of them are going to talk about pain and suffering and persecution. But God is listening to the cries of his anointed one and to his people. He hears them. So we've just covered five psalms previous to Psalm 8 where there's been a lot of crying. And I would suggest that Psalm 8 is right in the middle between another selection, another playlist of songs, Psalms 9 to 14. And if you want to read through those, just do it on your own time. Similar to what I just did, you could go through and realize there's more crying again. There's a lot of asking God to save and rescue, and Psalm 13 especially, how long, O Lord? And this is why I think it's important to realize that Psalm 8 is stuck in the middle of five psalms, previous to Psalm 8, and five psalms after Psalm 8. Especially, by the way, for any of you that are wondering, Psalms 9 and 10 are actually one psalm. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But for now, realize that Psalms 9 through 14 are five psalms. So you got five and five, and in the middle, Psalm 8. You guys following so far? 
Songs with lots of crying in them on either side of Psalm 8. So I think we might be served well to pay attention to this line about crying babies. Because there's a lot of crying on either side of Psalm 8. So first point is, God hears the cries of David, the anointed one who has been made king over Israel, and even as persecution comes, he's asking for salvation. He has confidence that God hears him, point one. Point two, in light of the surrounding context of the Psalms, Psalm 8 seems to serve as a reminder to David that your crying will be heard because God hears even the cries of infants. Do you see the logic? Psalm 8 is not cries. It, it, it really radically changes tone from desperate cries of help and salvation to glorious exaltation and praise. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. You are a powerful, mighty king. You created everything. And then the shift comes in verse 2 when he starts talking about infants and babies. And then notice the way the rest of the psalm from verse 3 on all the way to verse 8 starts suggesting that how can this big, powerful, majestic God in all of his grandeur look down and care about humans? You're mindful of us. You would crown us with glory and honor. Just look at us. We're dust and some divine breath. We were made from the dust, and to the dust we will return. We are small and insignificant when we are next to the large grandeur of your glory, God. And Psalm 8, verse 2 is going to highlight this theme that God hears the cries of David because he will hear the cries of even babies and infants. Out of the lips, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. Strange, isn't it? Countercultural? Flip your world upside down? It should. The more immersed you are in the ways of this world, Psalm 8, verse 2 will flip the world upside down on its head. You establish strength through the weakest humans on the planet. From the crying of babies and infants, you establish, and the word strength here in the Hebrew is the word fortress stronghold. The the majestic creator is the the theme of Psalm 8, correct? O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name when I consider the heavens, the fact that you have ordained all that is and everything is in its place, and I'm meditating as the psalmist on the the skies and the, the heavens. I'm meditating on the beauty of creation, and when I do so, I consider the fact that your strength resides in the establishment of babies' cries. Because of, notice the language there, because of foes, because of enemies. And this is why I think this is related to all of the Psalms before and after it. Who are the people that are enemies? The ones that are pursuing David and his anointed. So we just read in Psalm 2. It's what we see the theme is in Psalms 3 through 7. It's what you'll see the theme is in Psalms 9 through 14. So I think the idea here is that if God hears the cry of a baby and an infant, and in fact, he values little weak humans, 
then how much more so will God hear the cry of David when his enemies and pursuers are coming after him? And in fact, he will not just hear their cry. This is where the sermon, the theme, the psalm gets really good. To still the enemy and the avenger. To still them. Shabbat is the Hebrew word. Anyone know that one? It's translated in English as Sabbath. He ceases the enemy and the avenger. What is he meditating on in Psalm 8? Creation. Genesis chapter 1. How does Genesis chapter 1 end? And on the seventh day, God, Shabbat, he rested, he ceased. In the same way that creation ends with a climactic bang of peaceful rest as God enters into the goodness of his creation in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So the violence and the destruction toward little infants and babies, it will be stopped. It will be ceased because God hears their cry and he will end their suffering. That's what Psalm 8, 2 is saying. David, take comfort. Israelite community, take hope in the fact that God hears the cry of even little infants, and he does so by establishing the strength of his creation plan and new creation plan by ending the persecution of little babies and infants. They will be ceased. They will do violence to infants no more. All right, let's illustrate this. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. I want you to make sure that you realize this point about God hearing the cry of infants and babies is beautifully narrated in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 to 20. You can read the entire story, again, in your own time. I'd encourage you to do so. But the basic context of chapter 21, 8 through 20, is that God's chosen leader to establish a new family through a baby, through a son, will be Abraham. Abraham and his wife Sarah could not have children. And so they thought, well, if we can't have babies, then we'll find another woman, a servant within their house, to have a baby with Abraham. And God will bring about the promise through that servant woman. Bad plan, not a good idea, lack of faith, etc., etc., right? That's the story. And after God finally does fulfill his promise that through Abraham and Sarah, they have a biological child that will carry on the family name, now there's tension between the baby that was born from the servant woman versus the baby that was born from his wife. And that's the tension that comes when you see that verse 10 says, So she said to Abraham, cast out, this is Sarah, his wife, cast out that slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, that's the servant woman, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Friends, this is not cool. You're not supposed to read this and think, oh, what a moral example Abraham is. Him and his family are doing awful things to a woman and a baby. So what's God do in this moment? 
Where's God involved? Is he there? Is he listening? This is where the point is made. Verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, they're in the wilderness. There's no water. You're going to die. She put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. Is anyone feeling this for a minute? You ran out of water. You've just been kicked out into the wilderness. You're in the middle of a desert and you got a baby and there's nothing you can do. And you're so devastated that you don't want to watch the baby die right in front of you. I mean, we're talking pretty intense stuff here. And in the middle of all of that, she lifted up her voice and she wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. And he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. God heard the voice of the boy. In Hebrew, when you want to make a point, you repeat it again so that the person doesn't miss it. God heard the voice of the boy. The woman is crying, and God heard the voice of the boy. Doesn't that beautifully illustrate Psalm 8, verse 2? Out of the cries of infants who have been abused and neglected and abandoned, God hears the cry of the boy. Brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, you should be comforted by the reality that God hears the cries of infants. The logic of Psalm 8-2 is that if God cares about even the weakest humans, humans that before modern medicine would die a dime a dozen, they would just constantly not make it to age five, as we heard in South Sudan right now. Put your mind in the average person's life for all of human history and around the world and realize that kids die often, and so they were treated as worthless until they grew up and showed that they had enough strength to get beyond age five or six. It was, it was basically insignificant. We, we think of children at times in our society very highly and very lowly, of course, too. But the way that we view children, I think, will be a great window into your maturity and godliness. Your attitude and care of children and infants is oftentimes a direct line to your spiritual maturity and godliness. If God hears the cries of babies and listens and responds and cares, then how about us? Ten, very specific, very practical, making sure you get this point driven home. Ten applications for us in light of this. If God hears the cries of babies, do you? Do you care? 
First and foremost, do you care about the murder of children? The murder of children out of the womb or in the womb? Do you care about the issues of abortion? Do you pray? Does your heart weep? Second, would you be willing to adopt a child? Would you be willing to rescue a child? If you met somebody that was about to consider having an abortion, would you say, I will adopt them or I will find somebody in my church that will? Adoption is an excellent way for us to hear the cries of babies and infants. Third, foster care. We've heard testimonies right up here on stage regularly that the foster care system in America in general and specifically in Illinois needs lots of help. There are children and infants that are being overlooked, not cared for, and neglected. Could we care for them through the foster system? Don't like government bureaucracy and prefer faith-based nonprofits? Then don't do the foster system. Care for children through, number four, safe families. We've mentioned this also several times. Foster care and safe families are excellent ways for us to care for children that people don't care about. Number five, have babies and take care of your children. Some of us need to be encouraged to have babies. The first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply, or in other words, have babies. In our culture, babies are seen as a life-sucking nuisance to our fun and pleasure in our early 20s. So put that off as far as possible, if not altogether. It's wickedness. It is not a gauge of your great maturity that you would want to put off having children intentionally so you can go have fun. That is not how God set up the world and established strength. It's upside down. You have to think differently if you want to be confronted with the Bible. Take care of your own children. Have babies and take care of them. And that includes if you have a certain house set up and sometimes the more traditional way that this happens is that the woman takes care of the baby and the husband sits around and does nothing. Husbands, take care of your babies. Be a godly husband and a father that cares for children, changes diapers, helps out in the middle of the night and feeds the crying baby instead of rolling over in your bed and covering your ears with your pillow and saying, I want nothing to do with that. This is messing up my sleep. You know how I woke up this morning? Take a guess. A crying baby. That's my alarm clock lately. Take care of your children, number five. Number six, take care of the children in the church. Some of us are in a place where we can't have children. Some of us are in a place where we would love to take care of children. And so one of the great blessings of being a family that is the children of God, we all can take care of children through our children's ministry. And we can help and serve the nursery. And we can help and serve in K through third class. And we can disciple young children. And I would encourage many of you to not just be confronted with your sin, but be comforted and encouraged by God's grace. We shut down children's ministry, and it didn't take long before we had a great number of volunteers step up to the plate and say, I want to serve the children's ministry. That's great. Like, seriously, praise the Lord that this church, at least to some degree, one way or another, cares about children even other people's children. 
Number seven, do not think that church is primarily about listening to a sermon, so much so that when children interrupt the sermon or the service, that you're so flustered and distraught that you can't wait for those kids to just shut up. That attitude, I don't believe, is the attitude of Psalm 8-2 or the theme that we're seeing from Genesis 21 all the way to the words of Jesus in Matthew 21. God hears children's cry, and he does not turn his ear away. He turns to. So this goes both ways, doesn't it? Moms, you're allowed to use the nursery. Moms, you're allowed to keep your children in the service. You're allowed to step out if you feel like it's overly disruptive, but you're also allowed to keep them in because embassy church members and attenders, we could be serving moms well by not giving them those glaring looks. Hey, don't you know there's a nursery? Those kind of looks, those kind of attitudes, I don't think are becoming of the Lord Jesus. And his care for children, when he says, invite them in, how often are we using children's ministry like those disciples to say, get those kids out. We got to do real serious business. Number eight, babysit church members. Whether you are a single, sometimes this is overly done. Singles, here's your service to the church, babysitting. Sure, I think that's a legitimate application of today's message. But also, if you already have children, swap doing child care with other members of the church. Realize that some marriages would be strengthened by the fact that there's the need for dates and time away and just a break from the constant onslaught of crying babies. So encourage one another to get away and care for each other's marriages and spend time caring for other children, whether they're yours or not. Number nine, use the church directory to pray for the children of the church. Pray for their parents, pray for their discipleship, pray for their salvation. We have covenanted together as a church family that we will together seek the salvation of our family and friends. And we will together, not just the parents, but collectively as a community, raise up the children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. That's a covenant promise. Number 10, right? We're on 10? Yeah. Disciple children from various ages, one-on-one or in small groups. And I would also include in this, be willing to disciple moms who have babies that are crawling all over their moms and interrupting your wonderful, deep spiritual conversation. And you think, is anything happening whatsoever? Well, your love and patience to that mom and that family is doing a whole lot more than you may ever imagine. Maybe even more than the words that you could have said or the prayers you could have offered. Disciple one another. Disciple children. Disciple moms with babies. There's ten thoughts about what it might look like for us as a church community to cultivate the heart of God to hear the cries of babies and infants the way he does. God hears the cries of David. How do we know that? Because he even hears the cries of little infants. Third and finally, the last point in our message is that God hears Jesus' cry. Psalm 8, verse 2, declares that God not only establishes strength, flips the world's power systems on their head by highlighting the value and the importance of crying little babies, 
But then, says that God will put to end all of the oppression against babies. They will cease. The foes and the avengers will cease. Now, friends, when did that happen? How did that happen? How does Psalm 8 verse 2 become truth for us to celebrate and sing and have our whole life to be centered around? Answer, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, and he made him a human. Now, as a little caveat, many of you have heard this before. You've heard about God sending Jesus into the world. Yesterday, I was talking to Xavier Torres, having a nice chat. He's one of our former members and just moved out of the area. And he told me, Phil, I like when you throw in little nerdy tidbits. So here you have it, a nerdy tidbit. I have been doing a ridiculous amount of reading about heaven sending people to earth in broader literature, Greco-Roman literature, Jewish apocalyptic literature, even if those words don't mean anything, my point is this. There's a lot of stories out there of somebody from heaven coming down to earth in religion and in all kinds of myths and in legends, etc. This is a theme. And so some people might think that the theme of God sending Jesus into the world just is just another one of those legends and, and myths. Here's the interesting thing that I've noticed. God sent Jesus into the world, and he took on the form first of an infant. This is unique, my friends. This is unlike these other stories and legends. It might be an angel from heaven. It might be some God coming down and visiting. It might be all kinds of different manifestations of some heavenly creature. But God became a human. Okay, that's not new. God became a baby. Whoa, that's new. That's different. That should perk up your ears and light up your eyes. God became a baby. Jesus cried as an infant. He cried as an infant and oppressors like Herod. Remember Matthew 2? Do you remember that when God became a human as a baby, the world tried to exterminate all the children in Jerusalem, ages 0 to 2. The nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and his king. And when the ultimate king of kings makes entrance into this world as a baby, and as he cries in the arms of Mary, there are oppressive forces that are at work to cease the cry of the baby. All of them. That's what our world is like. That's what we are like when we don't hear their cries and care like God does. But in the kindness and mercy of God, he saved Jesus out of that oppression, rescued and delivered him from Jerusalem. He grew in wisdom and stature, became a full human man, 100% man, and lived the most amazing life that has ever been lived on this earth. In every way, he spoke what the Father had him to speak. He did what the Father would have him to do. He lived the perfectly sinless, morally perfect, righteous life. And what did he get for all of that as he comes riding into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21? Hosanna, Hosanna is the son of David. He gets praise. 
and he gets persecution. Because even in that moment, as his whole life has been lived to this point in the story, there is peoples plotting against Jesus. In fact, it's not just any peoples, it's the Jewish peoples. It's the people of God. It's like David having his own son come after him and try and kill him and dethrone him. As the writer John says in the early chapter of his gospel, the Son of God came to his own and his own knew him not. They rejected him. And so the theme continues. From his infancy, oppression, and to his adulthood. The rebellion against God and his anointed king continues. And as Hannah read for us earlier in the service, in Matthew chapter 21, after Jesus heals lame people, cares for the sick, shows the power of God on display through weak human beings by loving and caring for them, Jesus is rejected by the officials in the temple. Little kids are out there in the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And when they do so, there are a bunch of very haughty, self-righteous men that are, are, are trying to silence the little kids. And Jesus says, have you never read? It is, it is a, uh, a bit of an ironic thing to say to men who have memorized the entire Old Testament. Have you ever read this? Have you ever read Psalm 8, verse 2? And then Jesus quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of infants and babies, you have ordained praise. Jesus shows that the fulfillment of Psalm 8 comes as he is praised from little kids, little children, toddlers probably, are giving praise to the Son of God, the Anointed One. And when Jesus is there in that moment and he's being oppressed, he quotes the psalm and the whole thing comes together when you realize that it is through the weakness of Jesus and his death on a cross in our place that Jesus will put to end all of the oppression and all the cries and be the climactic declarative statement from God, I hear the cries of little children. Psalm 8 verse 2 comes to fruition through the cry of Jesus as he hangs on a cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus cries and embodies all the cries of all infants from all time and all suffering humans and becomes the epitome definition of human weakness, God hears that cry and raises him from the dead, declares him victorious over oppression and evil and suffering, accepts him and his offering into the heavens. And friends, this is the way the Bible ends. When the new heavens and new earth are reestablished, there will be no more weeping. There will be no more crying. There will be no more infant mortality, no more suffering and death. There will be no more oppression of little ones. Follow the storyline of the scriptures and realize that right at the center of it is a God who has become human, who has took on the form of a baby that dies in our place on a cross, who cries out to the Father. And God hears his cry and establishes a new world, a new humanity, and puts to end Sabbath, Shabbat, 
seizes the enemy and the avenger. For that reason, we should declare, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we come before you as weak humans. And we want to acknowledge not just our our finite limitations, we want to confess our sin. Our weakness and the death in this world is a direct result of our own failings and shortcomings. And that many of us when we're honest and when we look at our life, we do not value the cries of infants and babies like you do. And for this, we have been wrong. And for this, we confess that we are sinners and in need of your grace and your mercy. So we want to pray that by the power of your spirit, many of us in this room that are currently suffering, feeling persecution, needing your comfort, will remember that you hear the cries of the afflicted. And we can take comfort knowing that you hear the cries of the afflicted because you hear every cry of every little baby. And you are a father who does not abandon or neglect your children. So I pray that you will comfort those of us who are afflicted, but I also pray that you would afflict those of us who are too comfortable and have set up our life according to the agendas of the world. Father, these 10 applications that we worked through, I'm sure they could be nuanced and said in different ways, but I pray that the Spirit of God would be impressed on each of us. And where there is a need of conviction and confrontation with your word and your ways, I pray that we would rightly receive that rebuke. But I also pray that we would not in guilt or in some sort of let me try and make this up to God, but in mercy and in, in light of your grace and the good news of the gospel, we would serve in the strength that you provide through your spirit, through your kindness to us. As Romans 2.4 says, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. May today we leave here being reminded of your kindness to the weak and the vulnerable. Bless us this way in Jesus' name. Amen.